0: very good well let's uh, i'm going to ask if you're willing and able let's please stand we're going to read mark chapter 6 verses 1 through 6 this morning so hear the word of god so mark tells us this he says he went away from there and he came to his hometown and his disciples followed him and on the sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished saying where did this man get these things Verse five, and he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went out among the villages teaching. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but not the word of God. It lasts forever. You may be seated. So we have been, for for most of this year, we've been in this series in the Gospel of Mark and uh, we've been calling it Uh, the lion roars. And I I shared with you a few weeks ago that uh, there are 16 chapters in the Gospel of Mark and there's a very simple structure to it. And so the first eight chapters really focus on the question, who is Jesus? And we see that he is the sovereign of the universe. We see that he has has power over demons, he has power over disease, he has power even over death. And uh, so we see his sovereign power on display. Uh, in the first eight chapters. And then, and then chapters 9 through 16, Mark asks the question and answers it, why did Jesus come? And we see that his, his answer to that is Jesus came very specifically to die. And so chapters 1 through 8 paint the picture of just the, the, the beauty and the power of Jesus, that the kingdom has come in, in amazing power. Uh, and you see the lion Jesus roaring all the way through these eight, eight chapters, except in one place the passage that we just read. The lion wasn't able to roar there. And it's a, it's a very interesting passage uh, because, because what Mark tells us is Jesus went back to Nazareth with the disciples. And in verse five, he says he could do no mighty work there except you know, lay his hands on a few people and, and, and heal them of their diseases now why was that why couldn't jesus do a mighty work in his hometown of nazareth well the text tells us it's very simple uh, he couldn't do it because of their unbelief they rejected jesus through their unbelief in fact what the text tells us in verse verse six is jesus marveled at their unbelief he was astonished at their unbelief he was amazed at their unbelief it's like he couldn't he really couldn't believe it Now, what's fascinating about that statement is there are only two times in all four Gospels, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are only two incidences where Jesus was amazed or astonished at anything. I mean, think about it. What could amaze and astonish the creator of the universe? Not a whole lot. But there were two times in the Gospels of Mac, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John where Jesus actually marveled, where he was astonished at something. He was astonished, or he marveled, at the faith of the centurion. You remember that story? The Gentile who believed in Jesus. And he, told, he said to Jesus, just say the word, and my child will be healed. And the scripture tells us he was amazed at his faith. And then the other instance is here in Mark chapter 6, where, where Mark tells us, that he marveled at their unbelief so so just very practically jesus was amazed in the presence of faith and jesus was amazed at the absence of faith those are the only two times where he was he was amazed now you read through the gospels and what you find over and over and over again is the people were constantly amazed at jesus but only two times was he amazed at them so what is this passage about? I, I think very simply, uh, this passage is really about unbelief. It's about the people, his own people, his own family, the people that he grew up with rejecting him uh, through unbelief. So what I want to share with you this morning are just something very simple, just three aspects of unbelief for us to kind of think about, to get our minds and hearts uh, wrapped around Uh, this morning as we kind of consider you know unbelief and and really the power of unbelief and I want to I just want to share with you the reality of unbelief I want to talk a little bit about the relevance of unbelief why it's important why it's something we need to be thinking about today and then I want to I want to I want to conclude by talking about the remedy of unbelief so let's look at let's look at the first one the reality of unbelief you see it in verse 6 let me just read it to you again Uh, he marveled because of their unbelief now What what amazes God about humanity is is really not our sinfulness and our propensity for evil. That's not what amazes him about humanity. I I think what amazes God about humanity is our hardness of heart and our unwillingness to believe. I think that's what amazes him. We, We talk about faith, so many times we talk about the power of faith right faith can move mountains faith is what brings the miraculous at work in our lives but have, have you ever really considered the power of unfaith have you ever considered the power of unbelief it is a massive force it is it is a powerful force that extends all the way throughout eternity it really does it is very powerful. You think about Adam and Eve, they, they exercised unbelief in the word of God and the consequence of their unbelief brought a curse on creation and the fall of humanity. That's how big of a deal unbelief is. I think about Noah who was a, you know, a preacher of righteousness. He warned uh, the world at that time about their unbelief in God. And so, the world of unbelievers, uh, because of their rejection of God, their, their unwillingness, their stubbornness uh, in their relationship with God, they brought down a, a, a world of judgment, a flood of judgment down on humanity that wiped out uh, the human, human race, all because of unbelief. I think about the story of the people of Israel throughout the Old Testament. Uh, especially as they're wandering in the wilderness, they, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Why? They, they couldn't step into the promised land, the land that God had promised them. Why was that? Because of unbelief. In fact, Moses was not allowed to step into the promised land because of his unbelief. I, I think about the disciple Judas. His unbelief led him to betray Jesus, to commit suicide. And, uh, and and so you see the power of unbelief there. I think about the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, were unbelievers to the very end. And they died in their sins, separated from the grace and the mercy of God. So, so the consequences of unbelief are absolutely devastating. They're absolutely serious. In fact, the Bible Says so much about faith. I think it says even more about, about unbelief. In fact, let me let me show you a passage that's very familiar to us, John three sixteen. But have you ever considered John three seventeen and eighteen? Have you ever thought about what John seventeen and eighteen say? Let, let me let's just read the whole passage. Notice what the Apostle John says. He says this: For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not ha- should not perish but have eternal life for God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him but get this whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God so what brings condemnation what brings the wrath of God unbelief does that's what John that's what John tells us now in this passage that we, you know, that we're looking at this morning, Mark tells us that Jesus and the disciples went back to, to his hometown of Nazareth. Uh, he hadn't been there in a while. Uh, you remember, you remember in chapter three, we we talked about this a few weeks ago. That Jesus' family was very; they were very concerned about Jesus. He was going about preaching and teaching. He was saying some incredible things. His, he was healing people. There were these signs and wonders that he was doing, and and so the, the tension level between Jesus and the religious leaders was just escalating exponentially. And so his family was very concerned about him. And what we know about the family of Jesus in Nazareth is they didn't believe in him. Like his own family didn't believe in him and that was part of why they were concerned. They were concerned that he was gonna get himself into trouble. He was gonna push this all the way, and they, they had a family meeting and made the decision that they needed to go out and seize Jesus, bring him home because the scripture says he was out of his mind. That's what his family thought of him. And so they obviously were, were, were you know, unbelieving, of Jesus and so that's kind of the context of the story that we're that we're looking at today so Jesus arrives in Nazareth with the disciples he makes his way to the synagogue to to preach and and, and teach in the synagogue as was the custom of Jesus and the custom of synagogues when you have a guest rabbi in town uh, they he would, they were always invited to give to give the message and so Mark doesn't tell us anything about the content of what he said but we do know about the impact of what he said because it's described in the text. Let me, let me show you three words that kind of describe Jesus' impact on, on the people that day in his hometown in the synagogue. And the first one, you see this in, in verses 2 and 3. The first word I think that kind of describes his, in, his impact is they were astonished. Look at this. Look at verses 2 and 3. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. So they were like blown away at him. And, uh, and it goes on to say that they were asking questions about him in their astonishment. Where did, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? So, so they were astonished by, by Jesus. They were amazed by him. They had recognized that this was the carpenter's son. They had recognized that Jesus hadn't, hasn't read any books. Jesus hasn't had any formal rabbinical training. And they're astonished that he's saying these things without without kind of the pedigree that goes along with that. And Jesus had a group of disciples, which was very common for rabbis, but these disciples weren't exactly all-stars, if you know what I'm saying. There's nothing really particularly impressive about them. Uh, they didn't have great credentials. They were fishermen, they were tax collectors, they were just rough around the edges. There's nothing no degrees hanging on the wall, um, nothing to marvel at, certainly at, you know, his earthly or their earthly credentials. And so so the crowd was astonished that he could say these kinds of things. And so what you see here is this, this thought that even though the crowd was astonished at his teaching, apparently they weren't impressed. You can be astonished at something and still not be impressed by it like the movie Jurassic World. You can be astonished at the special effects, the cinematography of that, and not be impressed by the storyline. I think that's exactly what's happening here. They're they're, they're astonished that he can do these things, but they're just not really impressed, or they're kind of skeptical, and you get that in the text. Notice notice the questions that they ask. Where Where did this man get these things? Now think about that. They refer to him as this man. I mean, Jesus is from Nazareth. Jesus grew up there. You know, some of them probably wiped, you know, the snot from his nose, right? And they're referring to him, where did this man get these things? You can see some some skepticism and some distance from Jesus that has occurred over time and through, and obviously through what Jesus has said. Then they ask, well, what is this wisdom given to him? You know, they're, it's kind of like they're saying, well, he, you know, he could be from God, but he could be from Satan. You know, that charge has been leveled against Jesus already numerous times, so they seem to be falling in line with that, that perspective. And then they ask the question, well, how, how are such mighty works done by his hands? Like, Like, I mean, he's just He's just Jesus from now. I mean, how, how can he do, you know, we, we went to school with Jesus, right? Like, like we used to go to, over to Mary and Joseph's house and knock on the door. Can Jesus come out and play? And Mary says, no, he's, he's working with his dad. No, he's doing his homework. He'll be out later, you know, leave. And, and so this is the same Jesus who is teaching with such authority in the synagogues. And they're, they're familiar with him and it's almost like the familiarity that they have has bred a little contempt, as the saying goes. So they're just not clicking with the message of Jesus. They're astonished, but they're not really impressed. So that's, that's the first word, astonished. But then there's a, a second word, and that second word you see it in verse 3, they were offended at him. Look at, look at what verse 3 tells us. It says this, and they took offense at him. They were offended by him. Now, could you imagine the way people are offended today? <laughs> could you imagine if Jesus were walking around today? I mean, they would be like quadruple offended today. Um, but man, they were, they, were really, they were really offended by him. And so they've questioned his authority. They've questioned his wisdom and his miracles. And now they're questioning his identity. They were offended by him. Notice, notice that fourth question. They ask this, is is not this the carpenter? Notice that. Isn't, it, isn't he just a carpenter? I mean, isn't he just a normal guy? Isn't he just an average Joe? That's what they're asking. How can how can he be just a carpenter and say these things? That doesn't compute it. It, it really doesn't make sense. There's nothing unique about him. There's nothing that stands out. I mean, he's just an average guy. This doesn't. This doesn't really add up. And then notice the question they ask. They ask, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? Now, it's really a derogatory question that they're asking here. Because in Jewish culture, you would never refer to a person as as the son of their mother. It was a patriarchal society. You would refer to them as the son of their father. And, and so by, you know, you can see it clearly in the text that they say, isn't this the son of Mary? So it's almost like they're saying and questioning the legitimacy of Jesus' birth. It's, it's almost like they're saying, you know, we know who his mom is, we're just not sure who his dad is. We're just not sure of that. And so it's, it's a slam. And uh, I think, the bottom line for the people in Nazareth is Jesus is just way too ordinary to be the Messiah. There's just nothing special about him. He's way, he's way too ordinary. He doesn't come from special status. He's just a carpenter. And he doesn't come from any special morality or blessing from God. Uh, you know, he's the, he's the son of Mary. He's just an ordinary Joe. And ordinary Joes don't grow up to be Messiah I think that's where he is and I think it's the ordinariness that offends the people in Nazareth now let's think about people and taking offense and uh, why Jesus offends people and I think this you know this really even applies especially today Uh, but, but think about it why does Jesus offend so many people? You know, Jesus is an equal opportunity offender, is he not? He really does. He, he offends us all and uh, by what He says. And I think there are a lot of reasons for this. Let, let, me, let me share with you, you know, one reason why I think he offends people today, and I, I, I would say it this way. I would say that Jesus offends people today because God loves the ordinary. He loves the ordinary. He loves ordinary people, he loves ordinary families, he, he loves ordinary means, he, uh, he, just loves, he just loves the ordinary. When you think about the incarnation of Jesus, when you think about Jesus leaving heaven and coming to the earth, how would you describe that? The infinite becoming ordinary, the extraordinary becoming ordinary. I mean, Jesus was born in a cattle trough. He was born to a common family, a poor family. He, he, was, he grew up in a family with brothers and sisters. He played with those brothers and sisters. He went to school with those brothers and sisters. He, you know, he learned a trade from his father, just like his brothers and sisters. And uh, he grew tired, he was hungry, he was thirsty. He experienced all of those things that we experience. Now, what is that? It's just called ordinary life right? That, that's, that's what it is. And, and so, so what we see is that the Spirit of God works in our life in ordinary ways, through ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And for this, the world is offended at. Let, 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 me, let me share with you specifically how. I mean, just think about, think about the gospel message. Think about what we celebrate every single Sunday. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And what does the gospel of Jesus say? The gospel of Jesus says that we're not saved by being good people. That's the gospel. Did you hear me? We're not saved by being good people. Now just let that sink in. We're not saved by being good people. We're not saved by our performance. We're not saved by our past record. That's the gospel. Jesus lived the life we were supposed to live and he died the death we were supposed to die. We're not saved by our goodness and our performance and our past record. The gospel says we are saved by Jesus' goodness and his performance and his past record. That's what the gospel is. And for a lot of people, that's very offensive because the heart of the gospel is you can't save yourself. The heart of the gospel is you and I, we're in over our heads. There's nothing we can do to bridge the gap. No matter how hard we try, no matter how good we are, no matter how much money we give, no matter what effort we we can bring to the table, there's nothing we can do in our own selves to save ourselves. And for a lot of people, that is very, very offensive. You know, as I've talked so many times, no other religion in the history of the world teaches that. No other religion teaches that. You know, all the religions of the world is like what we can do for God. You know, give me, give me the five pillars. Give me the eightfold path. Please give me something I can do. And the religions of the world come and step forward to give us all these things that we can do to earn enlightenment or salvation or eternal life or nirvana, whatever you, whatever you want to call it. And Jesus comes along and says, there's nothing you can do. It was done for you. And so if you will transfer your trust from your goodness and your performance and your past to Jesus' performance and Jesus' past and Jesus' goodness, the Bible says you will be saved. And there are so many people who will never become Christians because that is just way too simple. It's just way too simple. And so I think that's at the heart of what's, what's offensive to uh, the people in Jesus' day and, and even to people today. Now, there's a third third word that I want to get to. And this third word is not explicitly in the text, but you'll, you'll kind of get what I mean. And that third word is the word deprived. It's, it's the word deprived. Now, notice, up to this point, everywhere Jesus goes, he's doing miracles. He's doing miracles. He's doing signs and wonders, right? I mean, he's, he's healing the sick. He's casting out demons left and right. I mean, he's doing all kinds of things, and he's just warming up. I mean, we're just going to go into a lot more things that he's going to do here pretty soon. But uh, he reaches to his hometown, and notice what Mark says in verse 5 uh, about this. And this is where we begin to see the word deprived. Uh, Mark tells us he could do no mighty work there except that he, lay, he laid his hands on a few sick people and heal them isn't that an interesting verse what in the world is going on there i mean jesus has been doing miracles all over the place Uh, the lion has roared in village and village and village and uh but he's not roaring here what's what's going on with this i i think the people are being deprived of the signs and wonders that jesus can do the signs and wonders of the kingdom and it's all because of unbelief their rejection of him their refusal to believe in him and, um, and so, I think that's exactly what is happening here. And I think in the same way, God is not able to work in our lives through the same unbelief. Now, what does Mark mean when he says, you know, he was not able to do a mighty work there? Does Mark, is Mark implying here that Jesus really didn't have the power to overcome, you know, their attitude and their sinful responses. And so he was just kind of drained of all of, his, all of his divine power. Is that what he's saying? He's not saying that at all. What he's saying is this, that the people's hearts are so hard, they don't want the work of God in their life. And Jesus is such a gentleman. He's gentle and lowly. He's not going to force himself on the people. Jesus is not a sideshow exhibitionist. He's not a stunt man. He's not leading a circus here. He's not going to do anything to amaze them so that they respond with superficial faith or a superficial response. He's not going to do any of that. He's not going to throw his pearls before swine. He's not going to do it. They've already rejected him. And so out of that unbelief and out of that unrejection, they don't see the working of God. Because you see, when the king, when the king is rejected like that, when the kingdom is rejected, it would be inappropriate for the, for the king to come along and bestow the, the benefits and the blessings of his kingly rule. They've already said no to the king. Now, he's willing to grant them. It's the heart of God to pour out blessing and benefits on the people, but he's not gonna do it if we've already said, nah. And our heart's already hard towards God. Now, I think a lot of people will say, you know, if, you know, Scott, if God would just roll back the sky and just show some big fireworks in the sky, if he would just show himself, then the entire world would believe if he would just do some huge miracle so that everybody can see him, you know, working tangibly, practically, realistically, the whole world would believe. And that's because our fundamental assumption about human nature is that human nature is good. That's what, that's what the world believes, right? And, and our issues are really an issue of education. We just had more education and more teaching than, than, than people would really kind of get with the show a little bit. But what the Bible says is the default condition of the human heart is really unbelief. And I would, I would submit to you that Jesus rolling back the sky so that the whole world could see him, you know, that would be an amazing sight to watch. But people would still come up with a reason not to believe. They'll say, oh, it's just a UFO, you know it's just it's just satan you know they'll they'll come with some reason because the default mode of the human heart is is really is really unbelief so jesus wants to do miracles but they don't want them they really don't and so and so jesus marvels at their lack of faith now how does this apply as you kind of think about this how does this apply to you and to me today? What, what's the relevance of this? Well, let's, 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 take it, let's take it a step further today. You know, th- there's so many of you within the sound of my voice, watching online or here in the auditorium, there's so many of you that have grown up in a Christian family. You, 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 you grew up in church. You, uh, you were born and raised in a country where you have the freedom to worship. You come to church most every Sunday, and you walk out every Sunday unchanged, and you're not even astonished, you're not even offended at Jesus, you're deprived, because because God's not able to work in your life because of your unbelief, and, and what's astonishing to me as a pastor, and it, 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 and it's been this way for 25 years, is how, how someone can come and experience the presence of God in corporate worship, how someone can come and experience the love of the body of Christ and hear the, the truth of the word of God and walk out day you know every Sunday in total unbelief. I mean, it's astonishing to me. I, I don't know how anybody can do it, but people do it all the time. It's absolutely astonishing. Now perhaps you believe that your sin is so great that you know it's just it's just too big for the grace of God. You know you've done something to mess up your life in the past. You, you think you think God could never forgive me for what I did, you know, way back when. And the thing that I would tell you is this: that your unfitness is fitness for the gospel. It's not the it's not the healthy that need a doctor. It's the it's the sick. And there's no sin disease that Jesus cannot cure. And then some of you might, might say, well, you know, I'm just, not, I'm just not good enough. I'm just not very good. I'm not a good person. And God could never save me. Church, it was never about your goodness to begin with. It's not about your goodness or your badness. It's about Jesus' goodness. That's the issue. And if you will put your trust in him, Jesus says, the mountain of your sin will be removed and you'll be saved. You know, Paul says it like this in Romans 10. if If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. So why not take that step of faith today? Why in the world would you walk out of here today in unbelief? In a few moments, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to, to cross the line of faith and to commit your life to him. But I, I wanna to talk to another group real fast. And that is, uh, for those of you who are Christians, this has total relevance for you and for me. You know, uh, unbelief is not just an issue for, for non-Christians, it's, it's very much an, an issue for Christians because, because there are a lot, lot of you in this room You've put your faith and trust in Jesus. You're, you're saved. You're, you're a son or a daughter of God. You're, you're a Christian. But there's certain areas of your life that you're living in unbelief. There, there's certain areas of your life where you're choosing a lack of faith. You're not choosing to trust God. Now th- think about it this way. What, what are the areas where, where all of us struggle? All right, what are those areas? So, so anxiety, fear, uh, we struggle with sometimes coveting what our neighbor has. We, we struggle with guilt and shame of things that we've done in the past. Sometimes we struggle with impatience. Uh, I can't wait for this sermon to get done, you know, that, that kind of stuff. Um, you know, we, we struggle with, with lust or we, we struggle with, with pride or uh, we struggle with unforgiveness, with bitterness. We struggle with all of those things. And, uh, you know, church, it's my conviction that what gives life to the things that we struggle with what gives life to those sins is our choice to not believe the promises of God. That's what fuels those sins' dominance in our lives. That's why they are so difficult to shake. Because at the very root, I'm choosing unbelief when it comes to the promises of God. You've heard me talk about the fact that in Scripture there's probably, I don't know, maybe two, 3,000 Uh, promises of God in scripture, I'm gonna be with you, I'm gonna protect you, I'm gonna provide for you, I I love you, I'm faithful to you, I'm never gonna leave you, I'm never gonna, you know, I I could go on and on. Probably 3,000 promises. And I think what happens is when we disconnect from the promises of God and disbelieve them, then what happens is God is not able to do a mighty work in my life and in your life when we separate from those promises, and I think so many times we think the way that we overcome sin is by doing more, trying harder, and being better. And you weren't saved by doing more, trying harder, and being better, so you're not going to overcome sin by doing more, trying harder, and being better. You see, faith is what saves us from the penalty of sin, and faith is what saves us from the power of sin. You're like, what do you mean? Well, let me explain. Let me explain. Sin has power in our life because it promises us something. Think about the promises of sin. Think about the fact that behind every sin is a deception, a lie that you and I buy into before we, before we do the sin. So if you, you lie on your tax returns, basically, basically you're saying, you know, I'm going to have some extra money and this extra money is going to make me happy. Or if you look at this pornography, you know, you're gonna have a surge of pleasure in your life that's better than the joys of a clear conscience. Or maybe you know, you're a high school or a college student, you think if I just vape or smoke or drink without my parents looking at it, then from this I'm gonna be able to calm the pressures and the nerves in my life and I'll be able to cope with anything that comes my way. Now, what do those three examples have in common? They're all lies. We believe a lie, and then we go all in on sin. See, we really don't sin out of duty. We sin out of deception. The Bible calls it the deceitfulness of sin. So how do, how do you overcome sin in your life? You overcome sin in your life with faith, faith in the promises of God. You, you put your faith uh, in a promise. You take whatever sin that you have in your life and you find the promise of God, and you say to that sin, sin, can you match the promise of God? Can you match it? And the answer is no, always. And uh, that's how you do it. You claim the promises of God over and against the sin that you're tempted with. John Owen, the Puritan preacher, said it like this, be killing sin or it'll be killing you. Um, the way that you kill sin is through the promises of God. So let me give you an example on this. You know, I've shared with you all in the past, I, I've, I've struggled with anxiety uh, over the past few years. And uh, I don't know, something about pastoring, um, uh, something about that, I don't know. But, um, but I've struggled with that. And uh, God's growing me through his grace and working in that area in my life. Do you, you know what he's showing me lately? Can I just be honest with you? That the the root of my anxiety, the cause of my anxiety, is unbelief in the promises of God. That's what it is. Just flat unbelief. Just flat the choice not to trust God. I'd rather trust me and my ability to control it rather than trusting God and walking with Him. Isn't that interesting? Let me show it to you from Scripture. This is Matthew 6, 25 through 34, uh, where Jesus says this. He says in verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Now, how would you interpret that verse? Don't be anxious, right? (laughs) That's pretty straightforward. Not a lot of different directions you can go with that. Uh, Verse 27, look at this one. Uh, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? It's a good question. What does anxiety accomplish? What does worry accomplish? Nothing. Notice verse 31. Jesus says, therefore, don't be anxious saying, what shall we eat? Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious about the future. Verse 34, do not be anxious about tomorrow. And then he goes on to say tomorrow has enough worries of its own. Now, Notice four times in nine verses, Jesus says what? Don't be anxious. Sounds like a command to me. So important, he's repeated it four times. And, and so when unbelief gets a hold of me, I've got a choice to make. Am I going to am I give in to it or am I going to claim the promises of God? And so I'm tempted to believe the lie that says, oh, if I just take it into my hands, I can work it out for my good. I don't need God. And that's a lie. And so, so the Bible says that I, that I trust God, I do what I can, but, I, but while I do that, I'm trusting God. And there's all kinds of promises on this. This is the one I've been using lately, Philippians chapter 4. Uh, where the Apostle Paul says this, don't be anxious about anything, so he's picking up on what Jesus has taught, but everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's a promise right there. That if I'll just pray about it, and surrender it to God's control, and trust in him to work it out, the peace of God will guard my heart, and my mind in Christ Jesus. So believing the promises of God leads to peace. Unbelief leads to anxiety. Now, church, that doesn't mean that you're never gonna feel anxiety. It doesn't mean I'm not gonna feel anxiety. Uh, When I start to feel anxiety, I understand that to mean I'm being attacked right now. The enemy's coming after me. So what I have to do is I have to fight him back with the word of God, with the promises of God. You see how that works? And so any sin that you struggle with, it's a matter of finding the promises of God and identifying what that sin is and then, and then fighting those, those sins with, with the word of God. Does that make sense? And that leads right into number three here and I'll close with this, the remedy of unbelief. The remedy really, is, you see it in verse six, Jesus went about among the villages teaching He went about preaching and sharing the word of God. And so the remedy for whatever whatever sin that has you pulled down is the word of God and believing the promises of God very practically, meditating on the word of God, meditating on his teaching, memorizing his teaching, you know, reading his teaching, studying his teaching, devouring his teaching, that's... That's where the joy is because faith, Paul tells us, comes from hearing the word of God, hearing it and hearing it and hearing it over and over and over again. So in other words, we fight unbelief with faith in the promises of God. Now, let me just say it this way. You know, there's an interesting passage in Hebrews where the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus... um, endured the cross for the joy that was set before him so he he went to the cross he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him in his future so the way I understand that is he was trusting the promise of the father to get him through the cross and to the other side and the joy that was on the other side So even Jesus went through the most difficult trial that he went through, standing on, believing in, claiming the promise, the word of the Father. And you know what? You know what the joy is on the other side? You. He endured the cross for the joy of him being in relationship with you. Isn't that cool? And he did it Through the promise of the Father. And that's how you and I are going to do it too. Everybody get it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the power of your word, thank you for the joy and the freedom that you bring to us through your word, through your promises. And so God, I just ask that your spirit would be manifested in this place today, that you would have the freedom to work, to soften hearts, to change minds, that you would give faith today. In the areas of our lives, God, where we have chosen unbelief, we, we just confess we confess that that is not of you. We confess the sin that it is. So forgive us where we've not trusted your promises. Forgive us where we've not trusted your future grace. And I just ask that you would work. You would work in us. You would grow us in your word. You would grow our dependence on your promises and on your spirit. And so we just thank you for what you're going to do in, in advance today. We pray all of this in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen.